what I've been doing is a chapter every time, except for not quite getting through all the chapters because I talk a lot, so and other people do too. So we did chapter two last time, but we didn't really make it through all of chapter two, so we're going to pick up the end of it. And also the, the first, just a, another sort of semi-overview, the first two chapters, chapter one and two, in, in, in a way their point, one of their purposes is to establish the chain of authenticity and authority and transmission from the, from Mount Sinai, when allegedly God gave the Torah, the written Torah, what we, what rabbinic tradition calls the Torah Shebechtav, the written Torah, which is the scroll that's sitting there and the, that I just put away in the ark, uh, that chain of transmission from that on Mount Sinai to the rabbis who wrote <laughs> all of this stuff. So, for the, since allegedly God gave the Torah to Moses, who are they to say, no, you should do this or you should do that? You know, what gave them any authority post-Torah to make any kind of decisions? You know, who voted them in and decided they were like the authority? So they wrote, because they're the rabbis, so they wrote their texts in a way that always made reference back to as if all they're doing is explaining what's in the Torah. They're not really initiating anything. They're not bringing anything new, really. This is just what they meant in the Torah by what they said. And, you know, because the Torah is terse. After all, the writing, the biblical writing of, in the Torah is not long-winded and it all seems that way to some of us who read it. But in fact, it's often very terse and short and brief. Uh, without commentary, it's a story, or there's laws when there's rules, when there's laws without Leviticus, something will just say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It won't say why. It won't say because, almost ever. It just says this or that or this or that. And so, you know, the classic one also would be the uh, in Leviticus when it says, leave a corner of your field. Unplowed. Okay, so there's this famous section, it's called Peah, that's what corner is. And it'll, it says, when you reap your harvest, leave a corner of your field unreaped for the poor and the fatherless and the widow and the stranger, um, so they can eat. It's a reasonable thing, considering that it was written at a time when clearly it was an agricultural society. People ate by growing crops. If you're a stranger, you don't have any land. You don't have any crops, and you have to figure out how to eat if you're a stranger in a time when you're wandering across someone's country or whatever. So they didn't have social services. They didn't have the Jewish Federation. They didn't have Jewish Family Service. They didn't have any of these organizations. And so they had rules <coughs> in which, like that one, that were commonly accepted in the society of how to take care of those most vulnerable in society, which is you leave a corner of your field which works fine if you're an agricultural society, but doesn't work so well when you move into town. Because, you know, if you're the baker and the cook and the, the, sh- the candle maker and the butcher and the whatever, you don't have any field. And so if you're a poor person in town, you're screwed, basically. So the rabbis and what the rabbis in rabbinic tradition, of course, would do is they would, in their own way, update, modernize, bring into their present time laws and rules and ethical commandments from the Torah of how it would make sense. So they would say something like, the principle of Peah 
is that you would leave up to 10% of your field for the poor and the homeless and the widow and the orphan. So if you don't have a field, what do you do? You do 10%. You give up to 10% of whatever you've got, you, of whatever, either financially or, you know, food or whatever to some common place in the city so that poor people can get taken care of. So, and they would say, all we're doing is, we are saying, this is what Moses taught, essentially. Although Moses didn't teach that. Moses said, leave a corner of your field. But in each generation, they would say, you know, well, Moses, what he meant was, and if Moses were here today, Moses would say this, and, um, and there's a wonderful midrash, one of my favorite midrashim, a wonderful midrash of uh, around the death of Moses, um, in which um, Moses is having this argument with God when he's about to die about how you know I can't leave. And Moses has all these long reasons why God shouldn't he shouldn't die with, and I can't leave because who's gonna you know teach the people i'm the it's the lawgiver i'm the teacher i can't leave i'm the guy you know how can i leave and so in this midrash god goes from moses and and pushes him forward in time to to sitting in the class with rabbi akiva in you know in the second century bce as rabbi akiva is teaching something and moses is sitting there has no idea what this guy's talking about but at the end of his his class, he says, and this was taught by Moses at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes, oh, I'm, I'm cool. I'm good. And so he dies. <laughs> so he said, let's God kill him to take his soul. You know, because, oh, I'm still, I'm still going to be being taught in my name. So everything's good. You know, it's that kind of thing. So, and they, of course, they write those midrashim exactly for the same reason I said that to, to say we are the, the, the natural, authentic inheritors of the tradition. And we are speaking in that voice for today, whatever, whenever today happens to be, 2,000 years ago today, there, there today. Were there other um, references in the Torah to this type of generosity other than the, the field business? Oh, yeah, there's other tzedakah things. There's other related things about, uh, you know, it's, first of all, all of the th- 36 times that it says, you know, you know, the heart of the stranger, remember the stranger, because, you know, the stranger in the Torah are all those, because every one of those became a a symbol of responsibility for those who are vulnerable, because that's that's what the stranger in your midst is, a symbol of vulnerability. They have no family. They don't have any support system. They're strangers in a strange land. Look at look at what's going on with the Trump thing, how everybody, thousands of people, all of not millions, all over the world start reacted, not just because it's him and he's crazy, but, you know, the whole refugee and the whole immigrant and the whole everybody all over the world knows those are the most vulnerable people in the world, the strangers in your in your house, the strangers in your land, and everybody's been a stranger, you know, so all these people have, this is my history, this is my life, how'd I get here, wherever here is, most, you know, all those people that are, are demonstrating wherever they're demonstrating know they're speaking on behalf of the strangers. You know, who are the refugees or who are the immigrants. So in any event, the first two chapters are designed to establish this sort of chain of transmission from Sinai, the written Torah, to the rabbis who all of their, all the Talmud and the Midrash and all, and the Midrash and all these writings over the, are called the oral Torah. There's the written Torah and the oral Torah. That's the oral Torah, even though it's all written down. <laughs> but, cause originally it wasn't, cause originally it was oral. 
because in fact, until Judah the prince wrote it down, it, this was conversations that the rabbis would have in in their academies. In their, they would get together and they would study the Torah and they would argue about what does it mean today and how do we, what do we do with this and how about if this and should we do this and should we do that <clears throat> and um, and it was all oral and as the, as the body of that those conversations grew and grew and grew eventually Judah the prince said we're going to lose this if we don't write it down even though it was hard for them to write it down because they didn't want to compete with the written Torah and, you know, create the impression that they were creating another written Torah. So they always called it the oral Torah. This is just the oral Torah, but they wrote it down so they wouldn't forget. You know, human beings. So, uh, so when Moses went to that class and they were teaching something you didn't really understand, yeah, yeah. Was it because his vanity was fulfilled that he was able to go, or was it because he sensed that in time this would... It was kind of like me turning this over to Amy. <laughs> she does whatever she does. I said, okay, it's good. It's going to work. It's all going to work. It's all, it was that. It was Moses going, oh, okay. It's going to perpetuate. It's going to... There's still going to be us. It's the other Midrash of the of of the the Shema Midrash that I quote all the time from, from uh, uh, Jacob's death. Jacob's, according to the Shema, this Midrash, Jacob is, you know, at the end of the Genesis, Jacob is lying there and he's dying and all of his sons are around him. And according to this Midrash, he's worried that when he dies, they're in Egypt. You know, there's no, none of us are in Israel anymore. They're all in Egypt. That's going to be the end of it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then nobody. You know, everything I teach is going to be gone. God's going to be gone. My relationship's going to be gone. And... According to this Midrash, his sons say to him, Shema Yisrael, because his name is also Israel, Jacob Israel, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, our God, Adonai Echad, that means your God and my God is the same, Adonai Echad. So, and then he said, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed, blessed then be that name forever. It's going to be forever. And knowing that they were asserting that, don't worry, we're going to end up continuing on in our own way what you taught us. That kind of thing. So, because there's a lot of those kinds of midrashim in Jewish tradition because it's a big deal. Passing on or not passing on, obviously, to the next generation is what all this stuff's all about. It's about how do I ensure the continuity of Judaism, of Jewish teaching, of Torah, literally, of Torah. There's a lot of references. How do I pass Torah on? How do I fulfill the mitzvah? You know, of in the Torah that says, you will teach your son, your child on this day and tell them the stories. That's what the Haggadah is about. That's what Passover is about. Telling the story so we don't forget. You know, don't forget, tell the story. And when you tell the story, you're like reliving the story. And, and so they were very concerned about that as they wrote and argued and did all the kinds of things they're going to do. So, um, chapter one and two are about authority of transition of tradition, and then chapter two was written sort of right before the destruction of the temple, and then during the time when they they um, remember this was the big um, monumental emotional, spiritual, intellectual shift in Jewish life was when the temple was destroyed by the Romans because everything was sacrifice oriented and priest oriented. And these guys who wrote all of everything after that, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the, you know, and the Midrash and all that stuff that's now what we think of as Judaism, 
in our Jewish tradition were the ones who saved Judaism when there were no longer priests. They started their academy in this little town of Yavne, and they taught and continued to teach, and they created this body of literature that ended up being what we call rabbinic Judaism, wrote eventually prayers and had prayer books because it's this that takes the place of all those sacrifices. What we do, that was our worship, was offering sacrifices. So once that was gone, either your religion falls apart, because, you know, the priests are gone, so too bad for us, or you invent some other way of carrying on your spirituality, and they created prayer as the substitute for sacrifice. Many of the prayers about the sacrifices, there's a whole section of prayers that we don't do because we don't, we're not into sacrifices, but in, in Orthodoxy and the High Holidays, they're all about the sacrifices, so instead of doing them, you talk about them. You know, sort of keeping them alive, that whole idea, until someday in the Orthodox world, don't forget, when the Messiah will come or when there'll be a third commonwealth and we'll rebuild the temple again. They're still praying for that, traditionally. You know, all that stuff, exactly. And sacrifices all over again. Go to the old city and you can go in some of those stores. There'll be a, there's pictures of, of the, the Temple Mount with Al-Aqsa Mosque is never going to be again. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and, you know, the Dome of the Rock. And instead they have superimposed their third temple there. God willing and all that. That's, you know, it's, it's scary. But that's, you know, there's a, that's tradi- Orthodox Judaism. But you can't say you could say that. All we're just waiting for the Messiah. When the Mashiach comes, it'll be it'll all be good. So chapter three is all about uh, final judgment. In fact, chapter three it's interesting. Maybe we'll start reading some of them. Let's finish chapter two. You know, if you have this one, if you have the purple one, go back to that because we didn't finish it last time. We'll just do that. Um, uh, where do we stop? What do we do? Let me think. Doesn't matter because, but. Uh, Well, let's start with the bottom of the first page, cause, just because I like it, 2-9, even when we did it. We're talking about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of these rabbis. He asked his five disciples, what's the right key to, key to right action? And so we have a section where these five students of his all give their opinion, and then he picks one of them that he likes the best. You know, so Rabbi Eliezer says a good eye. Rabbi Yoshua says a good friend. Rabbi Yossi said a good neighbor. Rabbi Shimon said to see what's coming, that is to know, bottom of and Rabbi Elazar said, a good heart, and he, Yochanan ben Zakkai, the teacher says, I prefer the, rabbi, the words of Rabbi Elazar, because his words include all your words. That is, a good heart, a lev tov, a good heart ultimately is, you know, encompasses everything. And then they do the opposite. So, on the other side of the page, he, he asked them, what's, so then what's the wrong path to avoid? It's like, duh. Rabbi Eliezer says, oh, an evil eye. And Rabbi Yoshua said, an evil friend. And Yossi said, an evil neighbor. And Shimon said, one who steals under the pretext of borrowing. That is, you can't trust people. And Eleazar said, an evil heart. And Rabbi Yochanan said, well, I prefer his words again because it's all about the heart. It's matters of the heart, which include everything. And then each of them made three statements, allegedly. Rabbi Eliezer said, you're not going to get them all, though. Rabbi Eliezer said, let your friend's honor be as precious as your own. Be slow to anger and repent one day before you die. And warm yourself by the fire of sages, but don't let their embers burn you. I kind of like that one. They bite like a fox. And I uh, sting like a scorpion, hiss like a snake, and all their words are like coals of fire. Like, what does that even mean? 
do you think? First of all, these are Eliezer's three statements. Let your friend's honor be as precious as your own, kind of self-evident, which is lovely. Be slow to anger and repent one day before you die. That's a famous phrase from the Talmud because it always raises the obvious question. You don't know if you're going to die tomorrow, so you need to repent. Every day. You do, except for if you're Rabbi Eliezer, he says you should repent. You should repent one day before you die. You should repent not one day, not one day. You should remember to repent. You should. It's repent the day before you die, and because obviously you don't know when you're going to die in theory, therefore you should repent every day. So you should clean up your act, and you should always be slow to anger. No doubt. Right. Be slow to anger and repent one day before death. So, and those, it's interesting those go together. What's the relationship between be slow to anger and repent one day before you die, you think? Why did he put those together? Because you're sorry when you get angry. Because anger leads to regret. If you're conscious. <laughs> For some people. Yes. In theory, it should lead to regret. Because what people do when they're angry is... Uh, Things out of there that they often aren't proud of. So repent one day before die. Warm yourself by the fires of sages, but don't let their embers burn you. There's this notion that that uh, well, what does it sound like to you? Why would you say that? Knowledge is good, but it can be dangerous hmm. if you get too close to the fire. You know, it's like you, you have to. It's like there's there's always a push pull about about. Unveiling the secrets of of knowledge, you know, of uh, sometimes I mean, there's lots of stories and folklores about too much knowledge driving people crazy, literally making them crazy. They, you know, un- unveiling the the wrong kind of esoteric knowledge and people going blowing their minds literally. And listen, to even that phrase, blowing your mind. What kind of phrase is that? Blowing your mind when you think about it. It means it's possible to ha- to have your short circuit your brain in trying to think, figure things out that you that are beyond you or too esoteric or too demanding, um, and so you have to be careful. Isn't this like the idea that uh, if you get too close to God, the God is like nuclear? Like, yeah, and like too much fire. Too much fire. You can't see God and still live. Right. I see a little timeline in here. Yes. Like the sages and embers. Embers are at the end of the fire. The sages are older people. So when you warm yourself by the fire of the sages, it means learn from your past, but don't repeat things just because they happened in the past. Love that. Beautiful, Richard. <clears throat> so 211, which is my wife's birthday, next next Saturday, <clears throat> Rabbi Yoshua says... Hmm? Yours must have been like 2-1 or something. Mine is 128. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Exactly. I'm two weeks older than her. So <clears throat> she's very happy these two weeks because I'm a year older than her this, for, for two weeks. Um, Rabbi Yeshua said, the evil eye, the evil impulse, and hatred of fellow human beings shrink a person's life. Actually, literally, it says drive a person's life away. It'll eat you up. Evil eye, evil impulse, you know, and hatred and jealousy. Just, it, it decreases your options yeah. because you don't love and people don't love you. Narrows you down. This is a whole vision of 
what it means to be human, or what, what humans being should, should be like. It's a, yeah. Which is not the same as some other people's business. Yes, right. It, it's exactly right. This is a, this is, and this is why this, these, this little, you know, if you, I mean, I literally have, this is, this page, these two pages, this is chapter two. This one is literally all of chapter three. I mean, I got them all on one page. I did the same thing for chapter one. You know, and there's only six of them. You can have them in, this is only this thick because there's commentary. It would have been this thick if he just wrote the, you know, then it wouldn't be a book. So he couldn't do that because he wouldn't publish it. So, you know, it's why it's it's the kind of thing that you could read the, all of Pirkei Avot before services. Somebody, you can come in, you know, in traditional services, people wander in and you can sit and read all of it. And, and it's like a constant daily affirmations. It's like daily affirmations. So, kind of like that. <laughs> so Rabbi Yossi said, your friend's money should be as precious to you as your own. Train yourself to study Torah and don't rely on inherited truth. That's heavy duty. And do all you do for the sake of heaven. Yes, isn't that interesting? Yossi was a kind of a, he was a independent thinker. Yossi, in many ways. First of all, your friend's money should be as precious to you as your own. It's kind of self-evident. You should, like, don't take advantage of them, and you should guard guard it. Um, Is the same language in Hebrew as for 2.10? Does let your friend's honor be as precious? Similar, yeah. It's a it's an echo of that, yeah. Um so train yourself to study Torah and don't rely on inherited truth. That's, of course, Rami Shapiro's probably translation. That'd be my guess. Um, don't rely on inherited truth, meaning which is it? Actual Torah. Don't, don't well, listen to the it also means have the courage to reconstruct and reinterpret the Torah. Yeah. Well, what I like that I learned tonight so far is that really what our culture is about is a constant re-examination mm-hmm. from our point of view of this sage data, of this Torah, mm-hmm. and that every every generation has its own reinterpretation. And as long as it's still happening, we're in good shape, you know, as long as there are people paying attention to it. It's interesting because Yossi, we don't know a lot about Rabbi Yossi, but one of the things that we know about Rabbi Yossi that I remember is he he was a mystic. He studied mysticism too, so who knows? Um, but but another way of yes, the Jewish version of peyote. The um, another I'm just going to see what what Yitz Greenberg's translation of this is. Uh, your friend's money should be as precious to you as your own. Train yourself to study Torah, for it does not come to you as an inheritance that is automatically. He has a different take on it. It's a very different take. Yeah, Yerushalach. Yeah, that it's not automatically yours. It's not like, you know, oh, I inherited this stuff, so here it is. It's only yours if you make it yours. It, you, you have to make it your own. If you're not engaged in it, it it's not going to be yours. It'll just be, you know, an empty, a group of words. Right. 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 You don't, it's not like kingship where you inherit it. Right. You don't just inherit that. You have to learn that and you only learn Yourself. Nobody can learn you, <laughs> really, right? Um, and and do all you can. Now, all your actions for, should be for the sake of heaven. Do all you can. L'shem Shemayim. Um, the idea of L'shem Shemayim, which literally means for the sake of heaven, for heaven's name. 
in heaven's name, is a rabbinic phrase. It's a very common rabbinic phrase that means for, it really means both for God's sake, literally for God's sake, you should do it for God's sake, and it's often for its own sake, as in not for a reward. In other words, you should do this not because you're going to get a big payoff. You don't do this because there'll be pie in the sky by and by which is actually what chapter 3 is about a lot, but, but that there are you know, rewards and punishments. Don't do it for that. Do it for its own sake. L'shem Shemayim. Do it. You know, why should you do this mitzvah? Not because someone's, someone's actually keeping track, but because the, the, the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah. It's the right thing to do. What's interesting is that it's tied to the same thing as your friend's money. money. Your own. Yes. In the nobility of helping your friend with their money, you should expect nothing... Right, right, right. Be generous with someone else, not because you expect something. For its own sake. Because it's the right thing thing to do. That's what for the sake of heaven that phrase means. So Shimon says, be mindful of reciting the Shema and attentive in prayer. Do not pray from rote, but seek compassion and surrender before God. Don't despair when left on your own. That's probably Rami Shapiro's that I wrote down because... um, be aware, let me see what he wrote. Be aware as you write the Shema, you can look at it in the Hebrew, Hebrew and uh, when you pray, don't make prayer a fixed routine, but rather the expression of compassion and pleas for mercy before God. And his, I love this. This says, uh, The Hebrew literally means, don't be evil in your own eyes. Before yourself. Don't be evil before yourself. Don't be wicked in your own sight, which Rami translated as don't despair when left on your own, which actually I don't know, I would, have, would have written this one if I thought about it. But that's literally I mean, you know, the idea of, of uh, don't do things. It's part of the same notion of consciousness. Study consciously. Accept Torah, learn Torah on your own. You know, don't just take it because someone says, here, this is what you're supposed to do. Don't act that. And here also, prayer is, needs to be yours, not just doing something because you're reading the words. You know, it's like why liberal Judaism emerged out of Orthodox Judaism. You know, it was literally that, the reform movement in the 19th century in Germany, where it started originally, was was exactly this. It was a reaction to the fact that that Orthodox prayer services were all about getting from point A to point Z, period. Faster the better. It was the, and because the, the mitzvah was getting through it and do, reading had nothing to do with what the word said. It was like, okay, are we here yet? Let's go. Done. We, we did the mitzvah. We get point. We get our mitzvah points. We're done. And the whole reform movement grew out of wait. Shouldn't a prayer service be something meaningful? Shouldn't it mean something to you? So what do these words mean? Because everyone was just reading the Hebrew from wrote and didn't know it then either. They didn't know what it meant. They were just learning it like, you know, you learn for your bar mitzvah. You get up and go, because you learn it by heart. You know, you don't necessarily mean you can read Hebrew. You know, so that's this whole notion, just to go back and show how authentic liberal Judaism was, is that here in the Talmud, it says, don't just do things, read the prayers by rote. If they don't mean something, forget it. Wasn't it also the roots of the Hasidic movement? Yes. Yeah. Which, <laughs> which, of course, then got stultified and stuck into another version of orthodoxy. Which, but for me, the, you know, <laughs> 
racing through. Right. And he's trying to understand it. Yeah. He gets left on his own because they've passed it. But that's okay. What he's saying is right. Right. You should endeavor to understand. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. You're doing it right. They're not. Right. Don't be evil in your own eyes. It's like don't hate yourself. Like self-disparagement. Well, that too. Yeah. It's also that because certainly, you know, mitzvah number one is recognizing that you're made in the image of God. Because that's the first thing that's ever said about human beings is that they were created in the image of God. Um, and, you know, I have often said, I will say it again, that if there was only one idea from the Torah, if that, if you had that idea and you believed that and you lived that, you wouldn't need any of the other ones. If every time you looked at someone, you saw God reflected back to you, you wouldn't be killing them, punching them out, stealing from them, abusing them, exploiting them. You'd be going, oh yeah, here we are. You know, we're all, we're all reflections. We're all godly. So, um, and that's, that's where Judaism begins, which is how, you know, Bert, what you said before about this is, all this stuff is a vision of our, our vision of what correct living is and what, what the right way to be a human being is about all stems from that. So it sort of goes from that very first, it's the first chapter of Genesis when human beings are created and declared God made them in God's image. You know, that everything sort of flows out from that and all of this is in theory, how do you, why does everyone, why does anyone deserve respect and dignity and even the stranger who you don't know, who you should be scared of, because they're strangers. Look at, you know, what we're, our country's trying to do is stir up so all we should be afraid of all these, these struggling, all these women and children from Syria, you know, all those millions of people that are displaced. We gotta be afraid of all those women and children, because they might actually be terrorists. You know, all that stuff is because that's a natural human response. Remember, the rule of how to read ancient texts or modern texts, frankly, any rules, any laws, is the following. If there's a rule that says you should do this, it's because people don't do it on their own. If there's a rule that says don't do this, it's because people do do it on their, if left to, uh, to, on their own. That's where that stuff comes from. So in the Torah or in, in the Mishnah or in the Talmud or in any of these things, when someone is telling you what you should do or what you shouldn't do, it's because it you have to elevate the human spirit beyond our natural inclinations because our natural inclinations are often our base inclinations, our fearful inclinations, our lower inclinations rather than our higher selves. And so we create, that's what religion is all about, really, is to try to elevate us to our the best versions of ourselves. I think all the religions are that way. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Which is what this is about. Yes. We're not taught what that human thing is and how to put oneself in it. All we're taught is how to read the words, which is unfortunate. Yeah. When we hear a story like, you know, Shema Yisrael, I never heard that story. I didn't know that that was the derivation, but it's like for me as a father of sons and a daughter, it's kind of like... That's yeah, it's good. See, that's what the rabbis make up those versions. So Rabbi Elazar says, two fourteen, be disciplined in learning Torah, know how to answer the challenger, and that is people who challenge your religion and your way of life and your thought, and know before whom you study. 
theoretically God, and know that reward comes according to your labors, which is, you know, not that you're always rewarded. It doesn't mean you're always rewarded in life. That's not what he means, because none of them thought you were always rewarded in life. They have lots of things talking about how come people that are good aren't always rewarded in life, because that's the reality of people's lives. You know, they didn't live in a fantasy world. They lived in the real world. It's that in life, you're rewarded according to your labors. That is, got to earn things in life. There's no free lunch kind of thing in life. You know, there's always a price to pay. Um, and the more you work, the luckier you get. You know, that kind of thing in life. That's the way the world goes, right? Rabbi Tarfan, didn't you ask about Tarfan before? Here he is. Rabbi Tarfan says, oh, the next one after that one, yeah. The day is short. I always like this one, too. The day is short. The task is long. The workers are lazy. The stakes are high. And the master is demanding. <laughs> it's all about God. But, yeah. But it's a cute, in Hebrew, it's cute. Because short little things. Yes, yeah. The day is short, the task is long, the workers are lazy, and the stakes are high, and the master is demanding, although he's talking about God and all of us. And then he used to say, You are not required to complete the work, but neither are you free to not do it. This is like one of the great statements of the Talmud, is that you're not expected to fix everything. But the fact that you can't fix everything does not release you from the obligation to act anyway, as if you can make a difference. It's the great, you know, sort of... That has been inspiring to me many a day when I got frustrated oh, yeah. with not being able to accomplish what it's like, I wanted to do. It's, it's so easy to get discouraged. Yeah, you know, it's like life is a big task. <laughs> you never get to the end <laughs> of the task. You get to the end of life, but you don't get to the end of the task ever. And he's saying, look, yes, you know, you're not, re- but you're not required to complete the work. It's like it's, sort of, it's supposed to let you go. Oh yeah, I'm not expected to like fix everything, but I am expected to keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing what I can to save the world. You know, because the world gets saved when everybody's doing that. Something like that. So you're not free to abandon it. If you've learned much Torah, you will reap great rewards because they're rabbis. They think that. You can rely on your employer to pay your due, but not in the currency of this world, but rather in the world to come. This is a segue into chapter three, which is all about this. Okay, so this sounds very Christian. Let me point out, not that, not that we don't like Christians, but... We're going to segue into chapter three, which is the yellow, is this yellow? Yeah. Yellow one that I gave to most of you. Um, which is filled with themes of, uh, final judgment, reward and punishment, the Olam Haba, the world to come, and human responsibility. Um, even though it sounds Christian, it's actually the fact that this text was written in Babylonia. Uh, And in Babylonia at the time, the current day Iraq, I guess, uh, that's where Bert hangs out. You don't hang out there anymore. He hangs out. He's he's in Africa now. um, That's where Bert used to hang out. We don't let the refugees in from. That's one of those places, one of those seven countries we don't let refugees from. We wouldn't let Abraham in. Forget it. In any event, 
at this in this period of time when the uh, the turn of that millennium when this stuff was being written, Zoroastrianism was very popular in uh, Babylonia. It was a big Babylonian, Persian religion, still around, by the way, you know, still Zoroastrians out there. Uh, Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is a religion from the Middle Eastern religion, interesting religion. They, uh, unlike our religion, which is all about one god, their religion was about two gods. There was a good god and a bad god. <laughs> the god of the good, the god of the bad. There was uh, Ahura Mazda was one of them, and uh, Ariman was the other one, and they have these, they, you know, it's like, we have, our version of that is the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Ra, the good and evil inclinations that everybody has, and they're sort of warring with each other. You know, Christians have God and Satan. Everybody has to have a, you have to have an advocate, after all. You know, we have to have an enemy. You always have to have an enemy. Just, never mind. Someone, yeah. You have to have the angel and the devil. Uh, it just don't exactly do that. So we have other sort of more benign versions of it. But Zoroastrianism had these gods you had to appease. There was the good god and the, and the, the, the bad god, the evil god. Um, and, uh, and Zoroastrianism was very, had a very big emphasis on the world to come, the afterlife. They were big into the afterlife. And Christianity became big into the afterlife, and Judaism became big into the afterlife in the Middle Ages and because of the influence of Christianity primarily all, all over Europe, because if it's good enough for them, it was good enough for us. So we started creating hell and heaven and things that were not typical parts of uh, of Jewish theology at all. There's no heaven and hell in the Torah. Um, there is a, some vague references to, you know, going down to Sheol or being with your kin, being gathered to your kin, that's about it. But there's certainly no descriptions of some afterlife in the Torah at all. Uh, that was a much later thing and influenced by Christianity. In Babylonia, and when the, these guys were writing the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, that's why it's called the Babylonian Talmud, um, is um, Zoroastrianism was, was the big hot religion at the time, and they were very much into afterlife and and, and judgment and reward and punishment and all that kind of stuff. So we did there what we have done throughout Jewish history. So we absorb the surrounding culture in which we're living and make it Jewish, some version of Judaism. So you'll see that reflected in chapter 3, which... When was this written? Well, chapter 3 was written starting right, starting before these guys, some of them started around the destruction of the temple. And, you know, within that, that sort of hundred year period from behind, from before to after. Um, Kavya Ben Halalal, terrible name, teaches, reflect on three things and come to no harm. Where you come from, where you're going, and to whom you are to give account. And then he tells you, where do you come from? A bitter drop of sperm. It's about humility. Where are you going? To dust, worms, and maggots. It's like, yay. <laughs> Thanks. To whom are you to give account? To the one who cannot be deceived. The shift, there's a little shift in the tone of the, of these, you'll see. But yeah, God. So, but, but you'll see actually several references here that, that are essentially references to humility. Humility is a big, big issue with the rabbis of the, of Talmud. Tell me the period. Um, you know, and forever to this day, because arrogance is, I mean, look what happens. <laughs> Obviously, arrogance is running the country. So, you know, it, so it makes a, a big difference. In any event, know where you come from, and when you come from, you know, 
gross things and you're going to gross things, so don't think so highly of yourself and know that someone's watching. Rabbi Achanina ben Tradion, the deputy high priest, teaches, pray for the peace of the government, for without it the people would eat each other alive. Yeah, there's several references to the government in here. And, you know, they had lots of experiences with how you couldn't trust the government, obviously, um, to this day. But they recognized that government was necessary. But, but they recognized that they needed protection. You, you want a benign government, but you sure as hell need a government because otherwise it's pogroms everywhere. You know, otherwise you will eat each other alive. Yes, yes, his own, his own, his own role, <laughs> exactly. But you know, because it, it's important. And Hanania teaches, um, Hanania teaches the same guy. When two sit together without sharing words of Torah, their talk turns to foolishness. But when two sit together and share words of Torah, the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence of God, rests between them. This applies to one as well as two. And then quotes Lamentations, let one sit in solitude and be still, for he will have received a reward for doing so. It's a quote from the book of Lamentations in the Bible. So this is simply about why it's important to study Torah. Because... Um, Torah protects you from the evils of the world, according to the rabbis. Um, and it's relatively rare that citing scripture as a proof text. Yeah. Well, we start actually getting more of it here, but I left some of it out. You'll see in chapter three, as you get la- later in the in Avot, you start getting they quote lots of things. I just left some of the quotes out because it was just because I. A lovely visual of the Shekinah thing between. Yes. But it's nice. I mean, they, th- that's, it's very reconstructionist notion, this notion, which is not that God is this external being that just acts capriciously or at God's will on you, but you evoke holiness and godliness by what you do. So when two people are studying Torah, God appears. God is there, essentially, the Shekhinah. This presence in the Shekhinah also is, is that wonderful, uh, attribution of godliness that is this sort of the feminine qualities of God, the nurturing, loving qualities of God, as opposed to, you know, the warlike qualities of God or all these other attributes of God, because the Talmud says there are 70 names for God. So this is one of them, but a popular one. And so the, the image here is that the very act of studying with someone, and in the rabbinic seminaries it was always zugot, Couples, pairs, you would pair off and, and to, for study, and then you'd go into the Sanhedrin, which was a big group like this. People would sit and have arguments, but you would do that one-on-one. That's the classic rabbinic way of study is, is in pairs, one-on-one. When you do that and you're studying words of Torah, as opposed to secular things, words of Torah, you're evoking a sense of the, the sacred, you're, you, which means you can bring God into being in your life by what you do. It, it is what I say. I should be a rabbi. Yes, exactly. So is Shekhinah a, a Torah word, or is it a Reconstructionist word? Shekhinah is a Talmud word. It's not a Torah word. It's a rabbi Talmud word. Like the spirit? Yeah, Shekhin is a, is, is a presence. It's a spiritual, holy presence. It's like the Holy Ghost. It's kind of our version of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, there are a lot of threes in this, I noticed. Yes. Three is very three is very popular. No, no, it's uh, we no we didn't. It was always that way. 
No, we have lots of. Their studying was always men. But it's nice to have a girl around, so you know, God's girl presence is showing up. Right. But that when people get together and study and engage their minds, that God shows up. Yes. Yes. God is where we let God in. Yes. Someone said that. Someone said that. One of the Hasidic masters said that. When was God? Whenever you let God in, that's where God is. Um, well, yeah, it's that long story in the prayer book about the guy who goes from town to town looking for God. Right. And he gets stuck in a town for 40 years, and he finally realizes this God was there all along. Wherever you are. So, Rabbi Shimon, we'll keep going, 3-4. Rabbi Shimon teaches, if three eat together and share no Torah, theirs is a feast for idols. But if three eat together and share Torah, theirs is a feast with God. Okay, so the first one, 3-3, three, three, Hanina, was about study. You evoke God by studying. Now all of a sudden, Shimon is talking about eating. Like, I mean, that's kind of a dramatic. You, you could see, studying Torah, you're doing a sacred act. What about eating? What do you mean eating? Everybody eats. It's so Jewish. <laughs> it's like, if, if you got pastrami and whatever there, and you're talking about Torah, then God's there eating with you. If. Keep going. See, if you if you eat together and no Torah, then it's like idols. It's idol worship. So you're just supposed to, even when you're eating, you're supposed to be thinking about God. Why is there that Talmud says you have to bless everything you get? You have to say a blessing. You know, hamotzi lechamina arts before you eat food. You have to, everything has a blessing. You're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day. Also says the Talmud. But if you, you're not supposed to. There's a sitting here somewhere. You're not supposed to. Um, Enjoy anything in life without a blessing over it. Everything you experience in life comes with a blessing, and you're supposed to say the blessing, because in the saying of the blessing, you're acknowledging that it's a blessing. You're invoking a sacredness to to that moment of what you're doing. You transform the moment. It's why years ago we instituted at KI a blessing for community service before every meeting that we have, you know, so that, you know, is the end of that blessing, to occupy ourselves with the needs of the community is the end of that blessing. The same is all the same as other ones. Blessed are you, I don't know. You know, and so we instituted that so that everything we do would be in a sacred context. So that before you start arguing about how you're spending money or what the finance committee is going to do or education committee or any of the committees you do, you start by creating a context which is a sacred context. This is holy work, whatever we're doing here. Even when it's the who's going to, whether we're going the mundane, we transform the mundane into the sacred. And, you know, the, what Judaism is so great at is one of the things I love about Judaism is its sort of egalitarian, democratic, spiritual nature. You don't need a rabbi to say that blessing. You don't have a priest to say that blessing. 
whoever's there, you say that, and all this stuff, you're eating in your home. You're not eating, you know, you're not waiting for the rabbi or the priest to come and give you the blessings. Okay, now you can eat this food. You, by saying this, these words, create the sacredness in your life. You have that power. Every human being has that power. That's like amazing. That's, that's like, that's so different than so many other religious systems where all the power literally is in the hands of the priests who are the only ones who know the magic words to say and can do the magic rituals. And so they hold all that power. They're behind the curtain. You know, it's like pay no attention to the priest behind the curtain, you know, and, and that's how they maintain their power. Judaism did the opposite, sort of opened the curtain and said, ah, we're all here. You know, once the rabbi, once the, the temple was destroyed and even then, even before the temple was destroyed, the 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 instruction book for the priests wasn't a s- separate private instruction book for the priests. It's in the Torah. Here's what the priests are supposed to do. Here's how they do it. They sprinkle the blood. They cut this thing. This is what this sacrifice is. This is, everybody reads it. It's public. We all know how you're supposed to do it, you priest. So we're watching. You doing it right? You know, it's like you can't go. Oh, I'm the only one who knows this because I have the secret book. We don't have a secret book. I'm not sure that's how why the yeah. 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 You know, which is a whole separate book of, but it's all based on Torah. The Zohar is all about. Here's the real way to read the Torah. Here's the real way to understand that letter in the Torah and that word in the Torah. You think it means what it means. Nah, nah, nah. It doesn't really mean that. It means all this stuff over here, all the hidden secret things. And, you know, and again, that was in a time when mysticism was popular around. So we, we had our own. You know, got to have your own. You got to compete with the rest of them. So you don't want everyone to just think they're the only ones that can do that. So so here we are with food. So when three eat together, even at your table, your table is a perfect opportunity, and certainly in Jewish life, not just because we eat pastrami and whatever, but because our festivals are about food, you know, and Passover plates and Sukkot this and, you know, Sukkot the Thanksgiving meal and the, the festivals were times of, <clears throat> of eating and, and the, starting with the sacrifices, which are about food. Don't forget, the sacrifices in the Torah, you know, bringing animal sacrifices and whatever, that was the following. I have a lamb. I'm going to, I want to give thanks because there's a Thanksgiving sacrifice, or I want to, I want to say I'm, ask forgiveness. So I go to the priest. I bring my here's the priest. I bring my lamb. The priest takes my lamb, goes up on the altar, slaughters the lamb, sprinkles the blood, says whatever words they do, takes a piece for himself. That's how he lives. After all, gives the rest back to me. This is now sacred food. I've He's consecrated this food for me. Now I go back to, I don't give it all away. I get it back. He gets a piece of it. That's how they live. And we get the rest of it back. And now when we're consuming this food, it's sacred food. Because that's the priesthood's version until we got all egalitarian when the the temple destroyed. But even then, in its most ancient version of animal sacrifices, it was about transforming the food that, that I was going to eat and my family was going to eat into something other than just food. It's, you know, it's a sacred act. Well, it's also a way to internalize something. Yeah, literally. literally. Yes, you're, 
You are literally eating it, you know, eating that. So, Rabbi Hanina ben Hachinai, Hachinai, yeah, Hachinai, it's easier if I can read it in Hebrew. Hachinai teaches, when alone at night or walking solitary in a road, I love some of this stuff, like insane. Don't let your thoughts run wild, for they will turn against you. Well, exactly. We are one studious people. Okay, so Rabbi uh, Hanin Greenberg says, we like the Greenbergs over here. The Greenbergs want to know what the Greenbergs say. Greenberg says, Rabbi Hanina ben Chachinai, Omer, he says, and the herb of Lila, uh, one who was awake at night and one, and one who travels alone on the road. And, and one who clears his heart for idle thoughts. He will, um, open himself up to destroying his soul. Destroying his soul. Wow. He's responsible. It's actually, uh, make, he, he's responsible for what happens to his soul. That's really what it says. It's his fault. It's his fault. Yeah. You shouldn't be alone out at night. You shouldn't be exposed yourself to, to who knows what out there. You should, or whatever happens to you is your own, is your own doing. Um, and get a good night's sleep. And get a good night's sleep. It's, uh, His commentary is, what do you mean awake at night when everyone is asleep? So if everyone's asleep and you're awake, what's going on? He's either planning crimes or exposing himself to a world in which criminals and murderers are awake. Right? Plus, travel is always a symbol of danger. Travel was always dangerous. You know, traveling alone, how much the more so. But travel is always, in when it comes up in sacred writings or whatever, it's a symbol about some danger because... Tra- Traveling was dangerous. You know, highway robbers and, and whatever, you were exposed, you were at the uh, mercy of whomever, and if you were alone out there, you, you're crazy. Basically, he's saying, you're an idiot if you're going to be out traveling alone at night, for sure. But anytime alone, don't travel alone. So, you know, you're putting your life in, in danger. Um, otherwise, you're not being... Uh, Putting your life in, turn, in tune with holiness. And Rabbi Nechunia teaches devotion to Torah frees you from power and possessions. Ignore Torah and it, they will crush you. They, your power, power and possessions will crush you. Torah is like a shield for the rabbis. You know, it, and you'll constantly see, turn it and turn it. Torah is what is your protection against the vagaries of life. Yeah. Hmm? Balance. Balance also. Right. And Elazar of Bartosa teaches, give God only what is God's. So, another quote from Chronicles. So David said, for everything is from you and from your own we are giving you. So, what does that mean? It's if, what does give God only what does God's mean, do you think? 
Just like what isn't God's, right? Caesar, yeah. Yeah. Actually, what it means is it, it's uh, the intention of give God only what is God's. Really, better translation, that's literally what it says, but better translation, more meaningful would have been um, um, what you give to God belongs to God already. That's really what it be. That is, don't think you're a hotshot because you contributed to, to God. Because where did you think it came from in the first place? Because everything's God's. So it's through God's grace and bounty that you have the world, the life, the intelligence, the creativity to, to, uh, to amass whatever it is that you have that you can then turn around and give back whether it's sacrifices in the temple, whether it's offerings, whether you're supporting the community, all the things that you do, quote, already belong to God because as the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof already. It all belongs to God anyway, you know, in that sense. So it's part of the humility versus arrogance idea that we think we're good because we're big givers to something. Well, but that's that's what it's for in a sense, you know. Um, Anyway, that's what that's about. Rabbi Yaakov teaches, if you walk on the road, absorbed in Torah, and place words between this and that, saying, how beautiful is this tree, how wonderful this plowed field, you've lost your soul. This is a tough guy. So what do you think he means? I mean, what does it, what does it look like he literally means? Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I just think that that's because that's being mindful and what you want to preach But if if you abandon Torah, if you get distracted by the beauty of nature. But we were just talking about balance. Right. Look, this guy, this guy, Yaakov here. Is, is what we would call in Hebrew machmir, which means he's uh, tough. He's an absolutist. When you're studying Torah, studying Torah. If you if you're so distracted by if you're that ADHD, then you shouldn't be outside walking trying to study Torah at the same time. Because, right, and definitely not alone at night. Because the fact of the matter is, if that's if you're that easily distracted, then you're not doing studying Torah right. You're not studying anything right. You're allowing yourself to be, a, you know, oh look, a squirrel. You know, you're doing that, which I know so well. So, therefore, you need to be if you're going to study Torah. Don't do it outside. Don't do it while you're walking. Find a place to make your Torah fixed so that you can study when you study and you can admire the world when you admire the world. But you can't do both at the same time or you're never, your study is going to come to nothing. So that's really what he's saying. He's saying if you put yourself in a situation where you're in the middle of allegedly studying, you're going, oh, look how cool that tree is. You obviously weren't studying. There's no focus there. You're, you're not getting anything out of, you're not going to have the benefits of the, of the, of the Torah itself. So <clears throat> that's really what he means. 
Okay, I made him sound better. Rabbi Dosai Bar Yanai teaches in the name of Rabbi Meir. If you forget wisdom, your soul suffers. I was like this one. Yet to forget is natural. So are, should we be punished for poor memory? No. Torah refers only to those who devote their days to denying wisdom. This statement, this was a popular statement at the time. That is, if you forget wisdom, your soul suffers. Um, <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is, everybody forgets things. So, um, so is there something wrong? Are we going well, yeah, to... If you deny it, if, you, if you're denying it as opposed to forgetting it. Yeah. Torah refers to those who devote their days to denying wisdom. <clears throat> you know, it's a complicated... Hebrew, but but what he's saying is it's natural to you can't remember everything, you can't retain everything don't beat yourself up for not retaining everything but know that um, he also earlier said um, in another part of the Talmud that that the only right way to study Torah is to have it fixed every day, because otherwise you forget. So this is sort of a continuation of his, what you don't see, his previous comment, that if you don't fix your your study on a daily basis, like being the right kind of student isn't cramming for an exam. It's the discipline of of habitual study of saying that this is integrating this as a natural part of your life. Otherwise, you forget. <clears throat> I sort of got this one as um, those that don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. That's good. You know, meaning <clears throat> it's typical that you make a mistake and you forget that, but if you deny that you made the mistake the next time you make it another time or you come up to that situation again, like that version too. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa teaches, if you're concerned for others, here's a couple of these that are similar. If your concern for others exceeds your desire for wisdom, your wisdom will endure. If your desire for wisdom exceeds your concern for others, your wisdom will not endure. Yeah, it's a great one. <clears throat> one of my favorites. You know, it's all that. What's really important? <coughs> you think study is the important thing. People are the important thing. You know, Keep your, what's your priorities? He also said, if your kindness exceeds your wisdom, your wisdom will endure. If your wisdom exceeds your kindness, your wisdom will not endure. It's another version of the same, same thought. <clears throat> and he said, if you bring joy to others, God rejoices in you. If you bring no joy to others, God does not rejoice in you. This guy was at the base. He was like, totally focused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he understood interpersonal. Yeah. He said, what's, what's the big picture? What's all this stuff about? Being the right kind of person in relationship with other people. It's not being a hermit. Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas teaches, oh, this is sleeping late, drinking early, talking with children, and the babble of fools will drive you out of the world. I just thought that was a crack up. Is that a real translation of this? Yeah. No, no, it's the real. Yeah, that's an earlier one. You're not supposed to talk to women either. I mean, sleeping late's not good for you. Drinking, yeah, not something. But talking with children, that's a good thing. Tell my wife that. Sleeping late doesn't know. It's like, what's wrong with talking with children? Joanne asks. 
um, if you are teaching them, then you're teaching. But uh, sleeping late in the morning, drinking wine in the afternoon, talking with children, sitting in the meeting places of the unlearned, shorten a man's life. That's another version of that. <clears throat> That's another way of translating. The thing about children is that if you're with... They're talking about children. Don't forget, these people were starting... They were like... In their teenagers, they were already adults. So if you're talking with children, if you're spending your time with children, you're simple. then you're doing children things. That's you're talking to them on their level. This is the men talking. This is the men talking. You're right. It's exactly right. These are, this is the men saying, you know, you, it's like say hello to the child and then get into the room and study because if you're hanging out with the children, you're playing children's games instead of talking about Torah things. That's really what they were. Yes. They're, they're old. These guys are old. Yes, well, yes, that's all true, but, you know, they're into, there's something frivolous about children's things as opposed to serious. That's really what how they think. Um, Elazar Modin teaches, Modin is right side of Jerusalem. That's where... Hanukkah happened, you know, Modin. If you mock the sacred, disgrace the festivals, humiliate people in public, deny your heritage, or pit Torah against tradition, even study and kindness will not secure you a place in the world to come. Okay, what does all that mean? Wow. Hmm. You've got to you've got to program. A lot of things here. Mocking the sacred, disgracing the festivals, humiliating people in public. That's my favorite part of this. Yeah, it seems like what doesn't, which of these isn't, it's not like the others. You can deny your heritage and you can mock the sacred, but humiliating somebody else has to do with somebody else. Yeah. Isn't that connected to the fact that everyone's made an image of God? It is definitely connected to that. What is this pit tour against tradition? What is this pit tour against Tradition. Um, it is. It really means distorting Torah's interpretations. The official interpretation. Yeah. So it's very non-reconstructionist. Well, it's. Um, it's no. It's it's reconstructionist. If you pit Torah, the other way around. If you pit the the ongoing Torah with the tradition, and and therefore say, no, no, we, we have to be, st- we're stuck in the tradition. If tradition always takes precedence over innovation or over creativity or being contemporary, then you are, um, in Elazar's view, you uh, deny yourself of a place in the world to come. That, that's a negative. All bad. Yeah. But, you know, th- there's another phrase, there's another uh, <clears throat> statement in, in the Talmud that uh, often you'll have, who is this? And then they'll give you an answer. Who is that? Or who did this? Or what does this? And what does that? You're going to get that eventually. Um, one of those question-answer things in the Talmud is, who doesn't have a place in the world to come? And then they give you a bunch of different things that if you do them, you don't get a place in the world, like he does. But But the classic answer to that is, somebody who embarrasses his fellow in public. You humiliate someone in public, you're denied a place in the world to come. It's such, 
And the rabbis in the Talmud equate that with murder. It's the equivalent of murder. If you embarrass someone, you, it's, you flush their, they blush. It's like drawing blood. And they say you're, it's the equivalent of drawing blood to someone. It's that severe to not embarrass someone in public, to humiliate another person. We just, if you're that kind of person, we just elect you president instead. I knew you were. I knew you were. He's so not getting into the world to come. <clears throat> he doesn't care. He got into this one. So. The so-called judge. Right. How do you do that if, you, if you're at the top of our entire system? Can you imagine? Imagine the so-called judge. Yeah. Sorry. Not only that, but if there's a terrorist, it's on him. <laughs> if a terrorist gets in the country, it's his fault. He's crazy. Okay. Rabbi Ishmael teaches, yield to the stronger, maintain your composure among the young, and welcome every person with joy. Okay. How how do those three make any sense together? (laughs) Yield to the stronger. The open-minded is basically what it says to me. Mm. Open-minded to your fallibility that somebody who's stronger might have more conviction or might be right. I mean, it depends if they're not right. Yeah, don't lose your cool. Yeah, believe in yourself. And then welcome every person with joy. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Mikabel et kol ha'adam b'simcha. Yeah. Receive everyone with joy. Right. It goes back to if you bring their joy to others, God does not rejoice in you. Right. There's another saying here, give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Uh, Shammai said that. And uh, you should judge all people charitably. Yehoshua ben Parachia. Give yourself a. Who said? Um, uh, uh, find a teacher, uh, make a friend, and judge all people charitably. Yeah, it's chapter one. What's the Jewish equivalent to screw me once? Shame, shame on me, shame on me, and shame on you. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Don't judge them until you've walked in their shoes, in their place. Don't judge someone until you've been in their place, literally, until you've arrived in their place. Exactly. Something. Something good about About everybody. Even some of the people that make you nuts. It's so true. That's pretty much the only way to keep your composure <laughs> is to look for the good. <clears throat> Akiva says, teaches mockery and cynicism lead to wickedness. Tradition protects truth. Generosity protects wealth. Intention protects abstinence. And silence protects wisdom. What do you think all that's about? Akiva's a heavy guy. He's a heavy thinker. This is about contradictions. Because if you look at all of them, they're like, it looks like the opposite, it has the opposite effect. But, you know, tradition protects truth. Could be relevant today. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Yeah. Tradition protects truth. I love silence protects wisdom. Yes. Because we tend to think of the opposite. The wisdom is someone who talks a lot. Intention protects absence. Intention versus deed. Um. Well, it's um, the the literal translation would probably be uh, tradition builds a fence around the truth and generosity builds a fence around wealth and intention creates a fence around abstinence. Um, because, but because in the Hebrew siag, building a fence, it's like there's this notion of building a fence around the Torah, which means that in order to protect, pre- prevent you from from transgressing this commandment, we're going to put another one up here that, that will put a fence around that one so you won't be, even get close to screwing that one up. You know, the, the yeah, that's like the classic one is high holidays and blowing the shofar. There's a, there's a, there's a tradition of if the, uh, if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you don't blow the shofar at Rosh Hashanah. Um, but not because there's anything wrong with blowing the shofar. On Rosh Hashanah, there's no law against blowing the shofar. There's a law in on Shabbat against repairing something that's broken. You're not supposed to repair. You're not supposed to work on Shabbat. And there's thir- 39 categories of work in the Talmud. One of them is repairing something. So the rabbi said, "Well, what if you know you, it's a high holidays and the shofar blower goes up there and there's all these people and he goes, something's wrong with the shofar. He's going to want to." fix the shofar so he can blow it because all these people are watching, waiting for him to do it. So we don't want him to screw up and do that. So We don't want to publicly humiliate We don't want to do that either. So we're going to say, you can't blow the shofar on Shabbat so that there's, if it's Shabbat, there's no chance he's going to go, oops, I have to fix it. That's a fence around the Torah. Yeah, it's a classic kind of thing. So these are sort of fences around these things more than anything else. Um, or however you read it because, you know, I like generosity protects wealth because I like the idea that, you know, it's like you get what you give in life and the more you give, the more you get out of life. And, um, and silence protects wisdom is a classic anyway. And for the rabbis, like, you know, better they should think you're wise than, than have you open your mouth and prove that you're not. <laughs> exactly. But I don't get intention protects abstinence. Uh, let me see what the Hebrew says. Uh, Vows are offense for self-restraint. Is that what that literally says? Nidarim siag li prishut. Intention protects absence. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, literally, it says vows are offense for, I guess, restraint is more like that. Self-restraint. I don't know. That must have been I picked up uh, one of Rami's. He goes, uh, intend. I think it's a one day at a time. If you intend to not drink today, yes. or be unfaithful yes. today, then you... It's a 12-step program. This is part of the 12-step program. The agreement you made to be absent. It's part of the 12-step program. Okay. You know, your intention helps you to not do things. He used to say, you are loved for your... This is one of my, This is a very popular... Talmudic phrase. You are loved for you are created in God's image, but God shows his love even greater by letting you know that you're created in God's image. <clears throat> you are loved for you are created in God's image. This love is greater still for it being revealed to you. Meaning if you behave in a godly Meaning that you know you're made in God's image, and therefore you have all these obligations, expectations, and opportunities to be godlike. 
to bring godliness into the world. It's It's about self, spiritual self-esteem. Literally, it says the human being is beloved for he was created in the image of God, and even greater love was shown by God in that the human being is informed he was created in the image of God. You know, it's about, this is where our spiritual self-esteem comes from, to say, right, to say, oh, I'm made in God's image. How cool is that? <clears throat> and then this is a famous phrase, too. Hakol Netunya. Um, everything is foreseen, yet freedom of choice is given. Everything is foreseen, but free will is given. It's a classic. It's one of the most famous phrases in the Pirkei Avot. Everything is foreseen, but yet you still have the freedom to choose. Which means, I got a great plan for you, but you're going to screw it up. <laughs> Which means, God may know everything. You may think, well, is God that kind who knows everything? Maybe, but it's still up to you what choices you make. <clears throat> it's like, like, you matter. like that. It's like Pharaoh. It's like the story of Pharaoh in the in the uh, in the plagues when <clears throat> when it says in the Torah that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and you know like ten times because there's the ten plagues, and the and the commentators ask, well then how do we hold Pharaoh responsible if it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart? But the answer is that uh, the rabbis give is that. All God had to do to harden Pharaoh's heart was let Pharaoh do Pharaoh, right. be Pharaoh, and his heart was hardened. You know, he didn't run counter to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was, that was his nature, was to have a hardened heart. So he did that. So, um, but that's great. And the world is judged by goodness, and everything depends on the amount of good deeds in the world. So, you know, the more you add, the more good deeds you go, then the better the world is. That's a very intense statement as well. That, that the judgment is based on goodness and not... Get out there and do, uh, and, and do mitzvah, too. Yeah, well, that's, that's the Jewish attitude of life, is, is, is for good. In the words of Stephen Schwartz, I have been changed for good. Um, he used to say everything is on loan and a net envelops all the living. The shop is open. The merchant extends credit. The ledger is open. He's consistent anyway. The hand writes, and whoever wishes to borrow, come and borrow. The collectors make their rounds constantly, day by day, collecting payment, whether you know it or not. They do not act capriciously. Their judgments are just, and everything is in the service to the final banquet. It's this whole fundamental idea of that, you know, that there's judgment ultimately. Afterlife. It's the afterlife thing. Yeah, it's the afterlife thing. These are a lot about that. Elazar Benazaria teaches without the sacred there's no mundane, without the mundane there's no sacred, you need this you know, if everything's the same, everything's the same we have Shabbat because we have the rest of the week that's not we have, you know, Kiddushin, we have sacred relationships because the rest of our relationships are different, we have, that's the only way you experience the sacred, is if you have the ordinary, the everyday without wisdom there's no wonder, without wonder there's no wisdom, without awareness there's no understanding without understanding there's no awareness Meaning Kemach in Torah, one of the famous phrases. If there's not flour, there's no Torah. Meaning flour is money, really. It's a substance. And without Torah, there's no flour. The Hebrew phrase is in Kemach in Torah. Lo in Torah in Kemach. So. I don't like that one. I like the other ones. Yeah, well.
when you're working in my work. <laughs> and you got to go out and raise millions of dollars to keep a building open and an institution going or try to do it. This is exactly the phrase that's in your mind all the time, in Kemach, in Torah. If, if you don't got the Kemach, then all these people don't get paid and you don't end up with institutions that do all the things that they need to do. <clears throat> you may do that. But it's not about that. It's definitely that. What's the question? What does it mean? Yeah, you have to have stuff. You can't just have Torah without bread. Right, it's bread. It's what we use bread. We use bread the same way. Right? No bread. Okay, time's up, but we have two more. I'm going to read them. He used to say, if your wisdom exceeds your kindness, you're like a tree whose branches are many and whose roots are few. Even a slight breeze will topple you. If your kindness exceeds your wisdom, you're like a tree whose branches are few but whose roots are many. Even if all the winds of the world were to blow against you, still you wouldn't budge. Yeah, it's a good one. And finally, in this chapter, Rabbi Eliezer ben Chisma teaches even, even seemingly minor laws. Uh, this is going to complicate it, but you'll just have to go with it. Such as those regarding bird offerings and the start of a woman's menstrual cycle. It's literally what it says in the Talmud. Are wells of wisdom for one who knows how to drink from them. Astronomy and mathematics are like seasonings to the meal that is Torah. It's like, yes, it's it's like, don't discount the <clears throat> what appears to be secular. Also, don't discount the the process of of in this case figuring out things. How do you know what a woman's menstrual cycle is that about? It's about the cycles of the moon, of the of the month, of counting. It's mathematics. It's all the stuff. This is all part of. It's all biology. It's all part of the sacred. It's all, it's all as well. Don't just count that and say, well, that's nothing. I'm only going to... Birds have to do with offerings. This is... They say bird offerings because bird is the smallest offering. So it's like don't... It's like saying don't don't discount minor mitzvahs because it's just a little thing because everything counts because everything is is counted in the sacredness of the world and in what... It's all part of God's plan. It's all part of, of study of Torah in the with a capital T. So thank you all for coming. Time's up. It's appropriate that you're here. And for all those thousands who are watching around the world.